Welcome to the 2021 Tech Congress series. My name is Caitlin, and this series will follow our newest class of Congressional Innovation Fellows as they make their way to Congress. We'll keep in touch with them throughout the year and follow up with them at the end of the fellowship to explore the highs, the lows, the surprises, and the evolution of their experience. A little bit of background. Tech Congress was created after our founder, Travis Moore, saw the lack of technical ex expertise while working as a staffer in Congress. The fellows receive a two-week intensive training in politics and policy, and then talk to prospective offices and choose a placement in a congressional office that aligns with their skill set and politics. They then spend 12 months on the Hill serving as tech policy advisors. Today, we'll be interviewing Jeffrey Kane, a 2020 Congressional Innovation Fellow. Jeff has written for several papers, including The Economist, The Wall Street Journal, Time, The New Republic, and Foreign Policy, focusing on how tech has upended our lives here at home and abroad. Jeff will be working with the minority staff of the House Foreign Affairs Committee for his fellowship year. Jeff, how are you doing? Very good. Thank you for having me, Caitlin. Awesome. To kick, kick things off, um, I'd love to know, where'd you grow up and you know how did that location where you grew up and how did your you know childhood influence your interest in tech and journalism? So um, I actually grew up uh, in two places in Los Angeles as a young child and then my family moved to Chicago a little later um, and from a young age I was very interested in PCs you know this was in the 90s I was interested you know I, I was I must have been in fourth grade and um, I just remember coming home one day and my dad was setting up our first internet connection. Uh, this would have been 1996. And, you know, he had installed Netscape. And, you know, I, I was playing around with it. And I just thought it was so fascinating how you could turn on this computer and just access anything, basically any piece of information worldwide that had been put online at that point. And, you know, just email, like all this stuff was very new back then. And I was a kid who was always into books and reading. And I sort of saw the early internet as an extension of like the way, you know, the way that we would gather information before, like going to the library. So I, I, I really did see that as an exciting development. Uh, I, I made my own homepage. I learned to code, learn HTML, uh, learn some, you know, early basic JavaScript, you know, these early internet focused, uh, you know, web languages that you could use to build uh, websites. And from there, I never really gave up, you know, my passion for technology. I mean, I was always kind of interested in, uh, you know, the new products, the new iPod, the new iPhone. I was always interested in trying things, these things out and learning about how they worked, you know, learning like what is the semiconductor inside them? What kind of display do they use? Um, you know, how did these technologies display technologies? How did they function? So, you know, I, I always had this technological angle that I was, um, that I was approaching my own studies from. The other big event that really shaped my upbringing was 9-11. Um, and I think that many people from my generation, the millennials, uh, would say something similar. Uh, you know, I, I was actually on track maybe to enter a more technological field as I was going into college. But when 9-11 happened, I realized how much of what happens around the world really has a major impact at home in the U.S. And so I decided in the end to study international affairs and I attended the George Washington University. So I've always been um, in these two spaces. I've always been, you know, a, a bit of a technologist, a bit of a writer, um, you know, writing about international affairs in particular. 
Uh, and that's really something that I picked up when I went overseas for the first time. So my first assignment was in Cambodia as a foreign correspondent. I, I was covering a genocide tribunal. So the, the Khmer Rouge, they were a, a genocidal group that had taken power in the 70s. And in 2009, uh, Cambodia and the United Nations were finally beginning to hold a tribunal that would hold uh, at least four people accountable for crimes against humanity. Uh, but while I was covering this topic, I was also traveling around the region and I was picking up stories in China, in both South and North Korea, uh, you know, in Japan, also in the Middle East. I had been to Turkey, I had been to Russia, and I kept noticing this vastly emerging trend of technology as a tool for either building democracy or you know, attempt, attempts by a government to tear down democracy, to, to get control of it and to, um, you know, hack the phones and, and, and seize the phones and arrest the protesters. Um, I, I really noticed in those years, it was kind of around 2008 to 2011 or 12, that technological questions were becoming uh, completely morphed together with questions about, you know, how diplomacy is going to be carried out in the future. And what does it mean to be a democratic regime versus an authoritarian regime? There really wasn't much of a separation anymore. And that's really what brought me into tech policy. I mean, I think that now we've reached a stage where, you know, technology policy is policy. You know, every element of policy has a strong technological element. And so that's, that's really what brought me to the program. And that's what really, you know, made me excited about it. Now, it sounds given your background that technology was in your bones, sounds like from childhood, it was something that was really a huge passion for you. And your foreign affairs experience sounds like it really blended well with your passion for technology. But I also wanted to backtrack and talk a little bit about your time at GW. I know you attended GW on a music scholarship. So what actually made you go from studying music to becoming a tech foreign affairs journalist? So I actually come from a musical family. My grandfather was a, a, a classical composer many decades ago. Uh, so he was the musical director of the NBC and he had toured with, uh, you know, with with choirs, with the, the Chicago Acapella Choir, um, you know, played at the White House. Uh, you know, in his day, he was very prominent. And that's a musical legacy that really has continued in my family. So when I was young, my parents put me on a, on a piano. Um, you know, I was four years old. And, you know, it was my grandma who was a piano teacher, sat me down on the piano, started teaching me it. And from there, you know, most kids, as they go through the musical curriculum of most schools, you're encouraged to take up a second instrument, usually a horn of some kind, and I chose the trombone. Um, that's actually what my dad played. And, uh, you know, from there, I really got into jazz, a mixture of jazz and classical. I played, uh, I also played in some hip hop bands and R&B. I mean, I, I had a, a wide spectrum of different styles that I was, that I was interested in. So, you know, throughout my teenage years, I also was very interested in music and, you know, thought about maybe pursuing that, uh, you know, as an undergraduate. But in the end, just decided not to because I, I just decided I was more interested in the international affairs field. So uh, what I did is I went to GW. I declared a minor in music and I had a focus on jazz. So I was playing in the jazz bands and I was playing around town with, with college groups. Um, and then uh, I, I declared my major in international affairs. And I also actually had another major in anthropology, which is similar to international affairs. So it's, it's easy to... Uh, to blend those two without having to be too overworked. Um, yeah, so, but the thing is that, you know, I think it's it's easy to forget uh, that, you know, music and like the way musical systems are set up 
it's very similar to uh, mathematical systems and technology and computer science. Um, you know, like a, a lot of people I know who came from musical backgrounds, they entered either math or physics or something very technologically focused. I mean, they they're I have one friend who became a, a quantum physicist, which is you know one of the most mind bending difficult topics I could I could ever imagine. I mean, I, I just can't even imagine getting through college studying that. But um, a lot of musical people do do enter into these fields just because the way uh, musical structures are set up, you know, the way the system works, the way harmony works, the way chords work, the way, you know, all these things work really, it, it sort of has a similar mindset to, you know, if you want to learn computer science, you, you want to learn how to program and code, there's a similar, like a parallel way of doing things. Uh, and I always found that kind of interesting. Like I would be, you know, in college and I'd be in the music class, we'd be studying music theory, um, you know, and then I would go to, I, I took one intro to computer science course. I mean, I actually didn't study a lot of technology in college, but I would be able to like see the musical system we were studying and then I could use it to to study the computer science too and just remember how things work just because it's it's just this thing with the human brain, you know, the way that they, that these things intertwine and work together. No, yeah, that sounds amazing. And I definitely think your passion for music really blends in well with technology and journalism. Like you mentioned, the whole system idea, it really does shape your perspective and, you know, forces you to think through things through a very different lens. So I think, you know, that actually makes complete sense to me. And going back a bit to your time abroad and overseas, I know you've worked on a, your interests have taken you to so many different places. You know, you've been to so many different countries, worked on so many issues. And you are also the author of a book called Samsung Rising, the inside story of the South Korean giant that set out to beat Apple and conquer tech, um, which resulted you know, from a lot of your coverage and your work overseas. Can you talk a little bit about the book and why you felt compelled to write it? Sure. So when I was overseas, I lived for five years in South Korea. Um, I had become you could say a, a Korea specialist for a while. I was with The Economist there. I was with Time Magazine there. And one of the things that I just found fascinating about South Korea is that it is one of the big technological success stories of the world. It's a country that had emerged from absolute uh, dire gut-wrenching poverty only about two generations earlier. I mean, we're talking the 1950s to the 1980s. Uh, Korea, for a while, was one of the poorest countries in the world, even poorer at one point than North Korea, its main a communistic enemy. And, you know, like I had been studying the, the politics and the economy and the technology of Korea, and I found it so fascinating how this miracle uh, could happen because of the preeminence of only a handful of companies that dominate over this economy uh, for both good and bad. So Koreans call their country the Republic of Samsung. And when they say that, they're only half joking. So, so you know, like if you go to Korea, um, you know, you could literally just wake up in the morning and, you know, have a, a Samsung made microwave breakfast in a Samsung microwave. You could hop in your Samsung car after you watch your Samsung uh, television and, you know, go to work to, and, you, you know, your job is at Samsung Electronics. You have your Samsung smartphone. Everything you use has a Samsung semiconductor. Um, you can live in a Samsung apartment. You can get married at a Samsung wedding hall. Uh, Samsung even has a hospital. I mean, you could, you know, like your kids could be born there, you could even die there. And literally, you can go to a Samsung managed uh, cemetery in Korea. So like, literally, you can live your entire life from cradle to the grave 
on Samsung. And this company makes up about one fifth of all of South Korea's exports. So the equivalent would be like in America, if we were called the United States of Apple. And, you know, just imagine if when Steve Jobs were alive, he had a direct line to the White House and he could call President Obama and, you know, tell Obama just to pass this law, do, do that. And, you know, let's say Steve Jobs were a convicted criminal, but Obama decided to pardon him for uh, massive corruption and white collar crimes because he's so important to the nation. This is literally not an exaggeration. This is the relationship that Samsung has in Korea with Korean society and with the government. So I was compelled to write the book just because um, I think it's really a case study. It's a fascinating storyline about what happens when uh, an entire nation places all of its chips in a single company and says, you know, you're going to build the nation, you're going to put food on our table, you're going to give us our jobs, you're going to make all of our computers and smartphones, and we're going to go around the world, and we're going to brand our nation based on the success of a single company. Also has many downsides, because Samsung can do just about anything it wants in Korea, and they're not going to, you know, their leaders are usually not going to go to jail, with a few exceptions, but that is really the story that I was writing about. Yeah, that's really fascinating, and I obviously see some corollaries to our domestic technological space as well. So given your time abroad and, you know, your years of experience working in foreign affairs and tech journalism, what made you want to make the pivot and uh, apply to Tech Congress? And, you know, what does it mean to you to be a civic technologist? So, you know, when I was overseas as a foreign correspondent, I, I felt like I was unearthing a lot of these stories, these just these incredible events, you know, being an eyewitness and seeing how things were developing, in particular, how trends were developing around the uses of technology by authoritarian regimes. I mean, I I did see many terrible atrocities happening in Western China, in a a region called Xinjiang, in uh, Russia, in Turkey, Um, you know, the, the expansion of the prison system to squash almost all dissents to, you know, to spread conspiracy theories. Um, I also was personally attacked once. I was accused in Cambodia through a a fake news project put out by the government uh, of being a CIA spy that, you know, I had been working with the opposition to overthrow the government when really I was just a journalist interviewing them, you know, at a restaurant. And, you know, what happened is that someone took a a photo, a smartphone photo of us and then put it um, on the internet. And it, it, you know, it looked like I was some kind of spook, you know, working with the the opposition people there, uh, which was completely false. You know, we've seen events unfold recently in Hong Kong, um, you know, some terrible things happening uh, in other, you know, Venezuela, other parts of the world, um, you know, America too has its problems, but my focus has really been more on the international affairs space. So that's just more what I know about. And I like witnessing all of this, you know, I was really looking for an opportunity to return to DC uh, many years after going to GW And, you know, just being able to apply what I've witnessed and what I've learned to actual policy to, you know, to actually have a hand, a say, you know, in the room when the decisions are being made, just at least at least being able to have a voice to be able to shape the congressional debate in in whatever small way I can. Uh, And, you know, it's really something that I was looking forward to, because also, you know, when I would in past years, when I would return from overseas to Washington, D.C., where, you know, I, I've had a home for a long time, I would find that the debates in D.C. were usually a few years behind what I had actually witnessed overseas. So, you know, right now, one big 
topic is the Uyghurs of China, the way that AI facial recognition and um, other new technologies are being deployed against them in very sinister ways. And it's been declared a genocide actually now by the State Department. You know, this, like this was starting to get big back in 2016 and 17. And, you know, just now in 2020 and 21, it's becoming the international affairs topic of the moment, the debate. Like, is it a genocide? How can we stop these technologies from being deployed in more nefarious ways? How can we govern these technologies better to make sure that human rights are protected? Um, and, you know, like, it, it's just so fascinating. I mean, seeing that gulf in, in the amount of time it takes for the policy debate to reach DC. So one thing I'm interested in looking at, I, I'm sort of trying to forecast now, you know, what are going to be the next big debates in the next, you know, over the next year or two, maybe even three down the road, and just trying to have a voice in Congress, trying to just kind of nudge people to, to realize globally what actually is coming now next, because the, the technology world moves really fast and it's important to stay on top of these developments. Yeah, I'm really excited for you to you know, start working on the Hill and to see all the amazing projects you work on. I know you just started actually a few weeks ago. How's it been and what's something that you might be nervous about for this uh, upcoming year? It has been so fascinating. It has been an excellent experience. All of my colleagues are very bright, very sharp, uh, well-informed, and we have had some some very interesting conversations you know, about what's happening in Congress now and what's going to happen. So, you know, I'm very, I'm very excited about the opportunity. My focus at the moment is looking at mostly Chinese technology companies. Um, so firms such as Huawei, uh, ZTE, TikTok, uh, a few others, but, but looking at some of their influence operations in the U.S., and in the process, uh, really one of the big themes right now in Congress and foreign affairs, you could say, is the term kleptocracy, that members of Congress are very interested in looking at the U.S. assets of some of these kleptocrats around the world, including those working in technology, and a lot of them do work in technology, and maybe finding ways to investigate and unmask some of the hidden assets that they've stored here and seeing if there's something we can do about it. So this is an interesting field because this is where uh, technology meets uh, anti-corruption, you know, where technology meets oligarchy and authoritarianism. Um, you know, how is it that we've come to this situation in America where some of the, the villains, you know, some of the bad guys overseas who have amassed enormous wealth through all kinds of corrupt schemes and, and, you know, all kinds of repression of their people, how is it that we could allow for these people to uh, stash their money in the U.S., in properties, in front companies, you know, how is it that our regulations have just been so weak? So that's really going to be something big that we work on in the coming year, and that's something I'm excited about. I guess the only thing you asked what I might be a little nervous about, and I, I think that we all have this challenge starting out. I really want to uh, be sure that I fully grasp and understand the, the vast mechanisms of Congress, which, you know, even now we went through the orientation and there's just, it, it's, it, it's like, there's so much, there's always so much more to learn about how Congress works, this procedure, that procedure, you know, the uh, ways and means and, and budgets and that side of things. I think that it is just, um, it is worth an entire PhD. I mean, you could write volumes on it. And that's really what I'm trying to ground myself in now. You'll get there. I know it's a lot of information, but I got complete confidence that you'll you know, get a full understanding of the landscape. So last question, really quick, sort of a, just a fun get to know you question. 
Given your music expertise and your familiarity with DC, especially during your time at GW, after COVID, where should people go to hear some good music in DC? So actually, that's a good question. And the reason I say that is because uh, not many musical places are open anymore. Uh, you know, like a lot of them have actually closed around DC. So, you know, one of the places that I used to hang out at was HR 57, which has since closed. Um, that was a, a popular jazz club on U Street. There are others, a Twins Jazz Club, they might have closed uh, due to COVID. You know, I've been I've been following and trying to stay abreast with all this, you know, all these these musical spots. And every time I check, like what what is actually going to reopen after COVID? It's not even clear because so many websites have announcements that they just say that, you know, we're not going to reopen, that we've just been devastated by this recession, by this pandemic. And, you know, music, like having a music club, it's it's an expensive endeavor, like bringing in a band every night and bringing in enough of an audience to cover those costs and to, you know, make it worthwhile. I think that of all the different nightlife hangouts, you know, if you were to compare regular bars and clubs versus like a live music jam session, those live music spots are the ones who are going to be hit the hardest. And sadly, by extension, the musical community. I, I have a lot of friends who are musicians and artists of other fields who have just been devastated. I mean, because you can you can hold a Zoom concert, you can perform online for however big an audience you want. But the sad reality is that most people don't want to pay for a Zoom concert. You know, the sound quality is not as good. It's more like you're at home in your pajamas, you're not like getting dressed up and going out and, and uh, you know, having fun paying the cover fee. So, you know, I'm, I'm just worried about, you know, the future of music in DC and where we are all headed. I mean, and maybe this is something, a side project that one of us can pick up in Congress sometime. I mean, maybe we need some kind of uh, injection of funding towards the, you know, the National Endowment for the Arts to, to resuscitate the lo local musical communities across the U.S. That's another, I mean, that's one of the beauties of being in Congress is that even though we're focused on technology, we can still have some kind of voice in these other areas that we care about. Yeah, I hope the music, you know, community returns to D.C. as well post-COVID. So yeah, that's it for now. So follow our Twitter at Congress Fellows to keep up with Jeff's adventures throughout the fellowship. A uh, special thank you to Jeff for taking the time to participate in this podcast today. Thank you to New America's Open Technology Institute, Tech Congress founder Travis Moore, Senior Advisor Brooke Hunter, and the New America production team for their continued support. 